Welcome to Kesed. If you're new, I'm Danny, and I'm going to be sharing with you today. Uh, we are in the middle about of our Iconic series, and Iconic is a, a series we're doing for the holidays that's talking all about the church tradition of uh, iconography. And iconography is this really ancient way that people used to describe God. It was much more common than it is now. Uh, they, would, they would do it through symbols. They would do it through icons, through pictures of mountains or, or birds or angels and different things that they would describe different aspects of how they uh, saw God and how they wanted to communicate God to the world around them. And uh, throughout uh, kind of human history, as we got better with language, as we got better and more people uh, were able to write, more people were able to read. We started using uh, more eloquent words and more eloquent ways to describe him, like compassionate and kind and generous and loving. And those are beautiful and important things. But along the way, we, we, we've lost a little bit of our ability to uh, communicate that God is also, as Scripture says, a refuge that he is also a mountain, that he is also a storm, that he is all these beautiful things that, uh, that, that can relate to our lives wherever we're at and whatever season we're in. And so uh, every week we've taken a different icon, something usually pretty recognizable, and talked about how originally the church actually uh, presented this as a way in which uh, the world around them could better understand God. Um, today's icon is Santa Claus. And so I just want to say, because I've now done this twice, um, we're going to have an, an open and frank discussion about Santa Claus uh, in this room. So if you have children in this room that, that would not benefit from an open and frank discussion about Santa Claus, please don't make me that guy. I had one mom who I had one mom actually tell me she's here Amber in the back. She's like, "I really thought, you know, why not just have you break their hearts, right? Like, why why me? Why us? Why not let it be the pastor's job?" And that's that is not fair at all. So, uh so don't don't do that to me. But um um, it, it's been a blast to talk about this. There's a lot to learn about uh, the, the history of this character and kind of what he was intended to represent. And uh, I'm excited to share more with you, but I, I do want it, to be, uh, I want it to be honest. So every service we've had like four people run out with their kids. So I don't know where they go, but because uh, I'm piped into every room in this building. So it must be in the bathroom the whole time. So... Uh, let me give you some history uh, on, uh, on Santa Claus. Uh, Santa Claus is primarily based upon St. Nicholas of Myra, who, according to, to kind of which uh, report you want to study, was a third or fourth century Christian bishop or monk. Uh, he was born in 280 AD in Patara, which is now modern-day Turkey. Uh, his parents at the time were incredibly wealthy and they died quite young, leaving the bulk of their estate to him. And so Nicholas uh, developed over time the spirit of generosity and took his inheritance over his lifetime and gave to those less fortunate and uh, ended up living a life of incredible humility during his, uh, especially his later years. Uh, legend states that Nicholas uh, had a giving spirit and that he would travel looking for opportunities to help people in need who were less fortunate and sick. Uh, something important to note about this time is being poor at any time is very difficult. And during this season, especially uh, in human history, to be poor also meant that you were more likely to face suffering and death 
because uh, to be exposed to the elements, to go without, uh, was something that was incredibly life-threatening, especially during these seasons when so much uh, rampant starvation and sickness uh, was throughout the land. And so it was really odd for people that this man who who had enough wealth to cushion himself from that suffering actually entered into it and then gave away uh, power, really, gave away resources, really, to people so that they could better their lives even at a cost to his own. As a matter of fact, in one notable story, uh, Nicholas came across a family whose mother had died and the father had gotten sick and, and knew that he was no longer going to be able to, uh, to provide for his three uh, teenage daughters. And in this world at this time, if a, if a daughter didn't have a dowry, it was really difficult for her to find marriage of any sort. And at this time, if she didn't find marriage, and she had no one to take care of her, there was a high probability that she would end up working in prostitution. And this man knew this about his daughters. And so St. Nicholas heard of this and ended up bestowing upon each of the daughters a dowry enough for them to escape that life. This is, is who this man was. And uh, there's many, many more stories of his generosity in a time when so few people were generous. Uh, December 6th marks the anniversary of his death and the preceding holiday that people begin to celebrate around him, which was the anniversary of his death. This is first and foremost what tied him into the Christmas season. Uh, By the time of the Renaissance, because of his legend and the growth around it, St. Nicholas was the most popular saint in all of Europe. He was so popular that uh, Pope Eugene IV on June 4th, 1446, canonized him and made him the, the patron saint for children, the poor, and prostitutes. Now, it's important to see that, that this didn't just happen by accident. It isn't that he was just so generous that, 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 that people just had to turn him into the legend that we now call Santa Claus. It, that's actually the church's fault for those of you who are <laughs> getting ready for me to uh, just really come after Santa. Uh, the church is actually who created Santa Claus and they did it to compete with another really well-known figure at the time known as Odin. Odin was uh, a god, a deity at this time that was, that was worshipped uh, as the uh, ruler of Asgard. I put up a picture last week for all of our, our younger folks. Uh, for the older folks, he looked like this. So this is, uh, this is what you're probably more used to. Yeah, a lot of offended older folks in here. <laughs> They're like, I don't just see him black and white, Danny. Right? I, 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 watch, I watch Thor. Right? Just relax, relax. I was just... I'm just trying to say that is a more true uh, caricature of how people saw him. And there's a number of similarities, all on purpose, between some of Odin's escapades and those of the figure who would become Santa Claus. Odin was depicted as leading a hunting party through the skies, during which he rode his eight-legged horse, Sleipnir. Odin was uh, this, this, this man who would, who would go from town to town riding behind Sleipnir. Sleipnir is described as being able to leap great distances, which some scholars have compared to the legend of Santa's, of course, eight reindeer. Odin was typically portrayed as an old man with a long white beard, much like St. Nicholas himself. During the winter, children who believed in Odin would place their boots near the chimney, filling them with carrots or straw as a gift for Sleipnir. When Odin flew by, he rewarded the little ones by leaving gifts in their boots. 
The church at the time saw the popularity of this tradition. They also saw a saint that many people begin to associate with generosity and with Christmas and more traits of Christ than, of course, uh, Odin. So the church leaned into it and the tradition became established. Nowadays, we hang stockings rather than leaving boots by the chimney. This went on for about 300 years with, with kind of these two competing entities with two comp competing, I guess, belief systems until about uh, 300 years later, waves of European immigrants brought St. Nicholas's holiday tradition to America. In December of 1773 and December of 1774, it was reported that groups of Dutch families in New York gathered to honor the anniversary of St. Nicholas's death. A noteworthy Christian poem was written to honor this time. It was called An Account of a Visit from St. Saint Nicholas. It was written by Clement Clark Moore, who was an Episcopal minister for his three daughters. You might know this poem, for it has later been called Twas the Night Before Christmas. This, uh, this minister did not know that his, that his poem about St. Nicholas would take off like it did. Somebody thought it was cute, put it in the paper, and then it just exploded. And within the poem, there is a description of Santa Claus that you all recognize quite well. It's the first time we refer to him as having a jolly old soul, that he has a portly figure. It's a nice way of saying it, isn't it? <laughs> he was chubby. And the ability to climb down into chimneys, which you would have thought, if you're going to get down into chimneys, why not make him chimney fit? But that's part of his magic, I guess. To leave presents under the tree for the good boys and girls. After leaving presents at one house, he would dash away to another house on his sleigh being drawn by eight flying reindeer. By the way, if you didn't know, Santa is Danish and Spanish for the word saint. And so St. Nicholas became what we pronounce now as Santa Claus. Um, I don't know about you, but uh, we did a really good job. Uh, I've been pastoring for a long time, and so all of my children have been born into the ministry. And, uh, and over the years, uh, we, we started off with our son uh, just being really clear about, about Santa, about, about you know, kind of what was real. I'm still, I see children in here, so you got me. You got me in a weird spot here, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to break her little heart if, you don't, if you're okay with it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna try to use thoughtful language today. A seven-year-old will do that to you. But um, uh, we tried to use really, you know, be really clear with our son. Like, hey, here's the deal. This is where it comes from. This is what it's about. And then our daughter, Taylor, our, our middle child, we, were, we, we realized like we let her kind of, kind of participate in the imagination a few years long, longer and then we shared with her. But by the time the youngest came, I just need to confess, I just didn't want the magic to die. I just wanted her to stay a little girl as long as possible. And, and so I just, I didn't lie. I just didn't say anything, right? That's what I, that's what I did. I just, I, I, I wasn't like misleading. I just wasn't leading. So whatever, whatever that's about. Until one day she came home from the bus. Yeah, it was, oh, it's heartbreaking. And she sat us down and she's focused in on her mom because she knew that I was good with words. So she was like, mom, is Santa real? Some kids on the bus said he's not. And I know you would never lie to me. <laughs> and she stared at me like, you though, you. But, and so Aaron looked at her and, and, and shared with her and she just collapsed on the floor. I remember she just was, she was a hot mess from then. And then like a week later, she just, it was like, it was like she had this really terrible breakup at eight years old. 
And I, 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 I got worried when we were driving somewhere in a holiday. We had a holiday channel on and she's in the back seat just staring out the window, like thinking about her lost love, right? Just staring out the window. And, and um, the, the song came on that Santa's coming down the chimney tonight. And I looked in the rearview mirror and she had one single tear. <laughs> and all she said was, oh, no, he isn't. Make your choices wisely, people. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> oh, no, he isn't. I was like, ooh. Uh, with, with, with all of that history in mind, here's what I want to do. I want to talk a minute and really ask ourselves an honest question. What about this man's life uh, would have such a significant impact on his community and for generations after to create such a legend in the first place? If you, really, if you really unpack it, really no matter how you, you pull it apart, uh, I believe it was his willingness to be so self-sacrificing during a time of great suffering. It wasn't just that he was generous for generosity's sake. It was that he was generous in a time when to be generous meant that, that you could endanger your own person, your own uh, uh, provision. And he did that in a way that was uh, very different than anyone else, it seems, at the time was doing it. He had very little concern, it appears, for self-elevation and no concern at all for reputation. Uh, up on the screen, the magic of Santa's legend lies in his perceived ability to set down his own reputation and freely help those who could not help themselves, and I think this is really important, or help him in return. In this way, he represents something much greater than himself. And so the original St. Nicholas could be seen as a representative of God's initiative in this world. Uh, if you don't know, God's initiative is the Missio Dei, the mission of God that's Latin. And it is concerned with three primary things, the least, the last, and the lost. And you can see it over and over and over in the person of Jesus. If you just take the least, Okay, just the very least when it comes to uh, who in this world uh, is, if you will, the most powerless. I believe it would probably be children. Uh, there's one story in Luke 18 where Jesus is, is becoming more and more well-known as the Messiah, as the one that, that, that is going to usher in the kingdom of God, as the one who will sit upon the throne in heaven. And all these powerful things are happening, which means all these powerful people are trying to get time with him because that's how power works. Power attracts power. And so all these people are coming around and his disciples are doing what they're supposed to do, which is connect Jesus with the right people at the right time to make sure his movement gets off the ground. Because that's what, what good members of, of, of the entourage of God do. They, they make sure that God's involved in the areas and the places they need to be involved. But then it says that something happened one day, one afternoon, I like to imagine, where all of a sudden people started bringing to Jesus their babies. Not their they're like, like children, the actual, we use the ESV version, English uh, standard version of the Bible because it's a word for word translation. The word is actually infants. It's Luke 18. It says, now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked him and they rebuked him because what good is an infant going to do to get your kingdom up and going? Jesus only has so much time. These little squirming things are coming. They're usually probably not smelling that good. And by the way, this is the thing about infants that are so endearing and so frustrating at the same time. They don't care. He's Jesus. 
I mean, you hand somebody, you know, a, a 10-month-old, they don't care if you're important, powerful, prestigious, famous. If they don't like you, they don't like you. They are what they are, and they act how they act. And these people were being, these young people were being handed to Jesus, and the disciples were like, whoa, this, this is too messy. Like, we got important people to meet with. And it says that Jesus saw different. But Jesus called them to him saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, please listen to these words from our savior. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. God is not interested in your power. He's not interested in your influence. He does not care how well I preach. He does not care about, about the things in this world that I care about. He cares about the fact that I come to him as I am, that I am present with him and that I am held in his arms in the midst of my mess, no matter. That's a picture of what it is, in my opinion, to come to Jesus. By the way, nobody ever comes to Jesus who isn't first admitting they're messy. You can always tell somebody who's had a true uh, transformative experience because when you ask them their story, they'll start off with a before story that always starts in mess. Anybody who's like, yeah, I just like went to church and I was like, this seems like a good thing to add to my life. Those people aren't saved probably. Jesus isn't a good thing to add to your life. Jesus is the only thing to add to your life. When you are drowning and your hand is barely above the waves and everything else in this world you've tried hasn't worked, that's when Jesus shows up because that's when you come up out of the water soaking wet, naked with your own poor choices and he grabs you like a child and he holds you in a space that, by the way, usually the first six, nine, ten months, for some of us years, you're kicking and screaming to get out of. All these people that come to Christ, and like, it was amazing. After that, I had five years of just pure joy after I came to Jesus. Not me. I came to Jesus, and I was like, what have I done? This man knows everything about me, loves me anyways, but like this Spirit is convicting me about my old habits and my old coping mechanisms and my old ways of trying to throw my life back into the sea of indiscretion. And he just keeps showing up and saying, not today, Danny. And that is frustrating because Danny wants to have the day. <laughs> and so do you, if you're honest. We come to Christ like these children come to Christ. And if we are proud then we get to stand in line behind them. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He's just not about your game. He's about finding places in your life that you and him can sit and have conversations, to be honest, that are really uncomfortable. From last week's message, Matthew 25, 40, and the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Our job as Christians is to not forget this. Our job as Christians is to seek out other people who are in the midst of this, but we cannot seek people who are drowning unless we're interested in getting wet ourselves. That's why we have to remember our stories. That's why we need to not hide the failures. That's why you're gonna hear me often here, and I've realized I've lost a few church members over the last season because I talk sometimes about things I currently wrestle with, not things like I used to wrestle with. That's a pet peeve of mine with pastors. They're like, you know, 10 years ago, I used to really wrestle with pride. And I'm like, bro, you're wrestling with pride right now on stage. So it, it's just not, it's not real. 
We need to remember that we are human beings together in the midst of this storm. And our job is to reach people like Jesus reached us, but we can't do it unless we realize that we also are one of those children, those infants being held by him in the midst of our mess. Uh, The next one would be the last. The last would be probably the poor and the without. Matthew 20, 16, so the last will be first and the first will be last. Uh, This is a really hard passage, especially for us in America, where we are taught since children to come in first because there is no such thing as second place. It's just first loser. (laughs) That's offensive. Did your dad never tell you that? Mm. Oops. <laughs> it's it's rough to, to it's rough to set down some of the ways that we are that we th- that we think in exchange for the upside down kingdom ways that Jesus teaches us. Uh, there's a passage in Luke 17 that says Jesus is traveling, and on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between two cities, Samaria and Galilee. Galilee are where Jewish people live, Samaria are where the Samaritans live. They were the people who were genetically inferior. There was nothing they could do to be as good or as wholesome or as true of a servant of God as the people that lived in Galilee. And it says, as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance. Notice it doesn't say they were men, it doesn't say they were women, it doesn't say their ages. It doesn't say who was from Samaria and who was from Galilee. It just says they were lepers because this is a beautiful thing about suffering is it equalizes everybody. When you are suffering, when you are truly uh, in heartache, when you are just, you are just exposed to the elements of this world, you can smell it on somebody else. And if you're willing to, to, to walk that out, to hand it to Jesus, but always still remember the difficulty of that space, you can maintain that smell and those eyes and be able to see other people who are suffering as well. That's exactly what's happened here. These people have banded together. They have a plan and they're gonna find Jesus. Because at this time to be a leper is to be unclean, which meant you couldn't go home, you couldn't go to the tabernacle, you couldn't even go into the city gates because you were a living example of sin outworking in your life. So if you're missing an ear or you're missing a finger, people would say that's because of sin in your story and curses of God upon you. And so these people found each other and built communities and they built plans to, to, to soothe one another and shore up one another. And this was their plan for healing. And so he entered this village. He was met by lepers. They stood at a distance and they lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priest. And then it says this. And as they went, they were cleansed. As I said earlier, during this time to be cleansed meant that the church had to deem you clean and you could come back into society. So Jesus is functioning within the system of his time. Just because he healed them there on the street doesn't mean they could go home. They have to go to the priest. The priest has to deem them worthy, make them clean, and then send them back into society. And that's where these people were going as their appendages started growing back. I've always thought that was just such a profound, what was, must that be like? like? Like, are you walking along and all of a sudden you just grip the ground better because you have more toes than you had 15 feet earlier? Does someone say like, I, I don't remember where the tabernacle is. It's been a long time since I've been there. And you go to point with your stub, but you actually have a finger. You're like, I can point. Right? Like, those are things you don't really realize. But this is what's happening with these people in real time. They are being healed in faith as they head 
towards the church of their time so that the priest can tell them, yes, what you've experienced is real. But one of them, we now find out, was a Samaritan. He was a man who truly knew what it was like to be the last. Maybe he was the only Samaritan among them, we don't know, but he knew that even when he went to the priest, he would not be allowed back in society. And so he decided to return to the source of the miracle. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan, verse 17. Then Jesus answered, we're not 10 cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. I think this is a really uh, provocative verse if you wanna look at it from a church uh, standpoint, because I think some of us, we used to be lepers. Somewhere along the way, as God worked with us, we, we had our spiritual appendages grow back. And now we're in church, kind of, kind of, this is, this is gonna get a tiny bit personal because I got a solid nine o'clock recorded, so we can always use that one. This is, this, is, this is what I wanna say. Some of us, some of you, you are at church so that you can climb the same spiritual hierarchy out in the world. You're here because you used to be missing fingers and other such things. And now the Lord through relationship with him has grown your life back. And all you wanna figure out is how to be somebody in this new place or be somebody in the spiritual world because that's where you think the cleansing will happen. And I'm just here to tell you that's not where it will happen. For this is actually the least part of church inside these walls. Church happens most of the time outside these walls. Church happens at the gas station. Church happens in traffic. Church happens at work. Church happens as you hold your daughter when she has a nightmare at night. Church happens when you have a difficult conversation with your boyfriend that you know you don't want to have, but you're here right now and you know you have to, I would do it today before you lose your courage. That's where church happens. This though is super attractive and, and lots of fun and, and really important. There's, there's, a, there's a place for this, but I believe many of us have gotten healed, forgot Jesus who healed us. And we're like, I just get to go home and participate in the community. I'm so excited when really we need to be more like the Samaritan and realize it is only because he has made us first it is only because he has set us at the seat of the table that we are no longer last like we used to be. But we shouldn't forget the lastness because that is the place that keeps us from the other nine, from playing the church games and from walking back out into the world saying, Jesus, you healed me. I bring you glory. What should I do with my life next? I've said it before. I'll say it again. Some of you aren't supposed to be at this church. God's called you to another one. You should go. They're waiting for you. Some of you, you don't wanna be here. You're like, I don't like this. And I'm like, I'm sorry, the Holy Spirit brought you here. Participate, stop whining. <laughs> this is his. He builds it, he directs it, he assigns assignments, he, he gifts gifts. And our job is to not get caught up in the gifts of his healing, but to get caught up in the one who's the gift giver. That's our job, okay? One more thing for those of you who are, uh, well provided for, and this is just a gift for you and the Holy Spirit and maybe a park bench later uh, this week. How difficult it is, it says in Luke 18, for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. That does not mean being wealthy is sinful. It does not mean money is evil. It is not money is the root of all evil, by the way. It is money is the root of all kinds of evil. We always skip the kinds part, try to make it a whole thing. Having wealth is not a bad thing, but it is a pretty heavy distraction. 
So be aware of resting in your own comfort and thinking that is blessing from God. Maybe, like St. Nicholas, you're actually supposed to be generous with what God has given you and that's the only reason you have it in the first place. Very personal room today. Sorry about that. So somebody showed up and changed everything. All right, next section. The lost, the prostitutes, and the outcasts. <laughs> we'll see where this goes now, won't we, Holy Spirit? Luke 19, 10, for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Uh, God came for lost people. That's, that's why he came. He didn't come for found people. He didn't come for healed people. Uh, he came for people who were lost and who are again, least and last. Luke 15, three through seven is a great parable around this. He says, so he told them this parable, Jesus speaking, what man of you having a hundred sheep if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. And now best line of the whole passage, just so I tell you, Jesus says, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. This, this is a call to never forget that you and I are the one. That, that we're not the 99. The 99 is good. The 99 is, you wanna be with the shepherd. But the reality is, if he turns his back even for a second, you know and I know, I'm gonna take it for the woods. I'm gonna run off. It, it's just what I do. I'm, as the old song says, prone to wander. And so are you, whether you confess it or not. I have always been the one and he always comes and finds me and he picks me up like that infant, smelly in the midst of my own mess and he carries me back down to the pasture of communion. Half the time I'm kicking and screaming and half the time I'm sobbing because I can't believe he came and got me again. Mm. We are all the one, but we often live like we're the 99 and we judge the ones that we seem aren't quite in enough. They haven't figured it out enough. Don't they know that when you sneak out in this public way or you have that particular lifestyle, people can tell. You got to keep that stuff inside and be arrogant like me. Be proud, be, be scheming, be conniving, play the game and so forth. But the truth of it is we are all the one and we all follow a shepherd who finds us where we are and brings us back into his presence. And I believe we are supposed to hold on to this posture. I believe it is what we are supposed to smell like. To be part of the kingdom is to be someone who was lost but is found. That's why there's so many parables about lost things like this one. Then there's the lost coin. There's the lost son known as the prodigal and on and on and on and on because we are all part of that story. And it is the generosity of Christ who loved us by setting down his own well-being that has echoed through eternity and that we call the gospel truth and salvation. This list goes on and on and on describing all of these things. But what I can say is that clearly God is concerned with those of low estate. Uh, Billy Kangas said over and over throughout scripture, we are reminded, I love this quote, that the God we serve is not a God who allows his transcendence to keep him detached, but condescends to become imminent. The movement of God in the person of Jesus Christ is a trajectory of humiliation. God's initiative has always reached out to those in the same trajectory. From the woman at the well to the widow's, 
from the shepherd, King David, to the babe in Bethlehem, God shows up in unexpected ways by the world's standards, proclaiming that if we want to find where he is moving, all we have to do is look toward the least, the last, and the lost. But here's the problem. So we're just gonna get superhuman in the room. Here's the problem. Serving these sorts of people will not aid in my reputation building because these sorts of people can't help me back. They can't repay or repair anything within my social hierarchy. This is, by the way, why social media is such an addictive force in our culture. It's a reputation building tool and we just love doing that. And helping these sort of people doesn't aid in the growing of Danny's ego especially if you do it quietly, especially if you do it Jesusly. This is how Jesus describe, or Paul describes what that looks like in Philippians about Jesus. He says this, have this mind among yourselves. This is how you're to think about these sorts of things, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Verse seven of the King James Version uh, is, I like it a little bit better. It says, but he made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant. Uh, Scott Roden said about that verse, the verse does not say that Jesus became a man of bad reputation or questionable reputation, but simply of no reputation. That is reputation, image, prestige, prominence, power, and other trappings of leadership were not only devalued, they were purposely dismissed. Jesus became such a man, not by default or accident, but by intention and design. And it was only in this form that he could serve, love, give, teach, and yes, lead. Here's my question. What if following Christ is an ongoing disciplined practice of becoming a person of no reputation and thus becoming more like Christ in this unique, generous way? What if this is actually the path? This is actually the narrow road. In his Reflections on Christian Leadership, uh, which is a book by Henry Nouwen, uh, he refers to this as uh, resisting the temptation to be relevant. It's my favorite quote of the sermon. He says, I am deeply convinced that the Christian leader of the future is called to be completely irrelevant and to stand in this world with nothing to offer but his or her own vulnerable self. Maybe this is why the world is so drawn to the legend of Santa Claus, a person who supposedly lived that out so wonderfully. Selflessness is so rarely seen and yet so desired by this world that even an imaginary figure is celebrated when he appears to represent these life-giving characteristics. How much more, how much more, how much more should the world know the very real person of Jesus Christ? And this is why we are each called to exchange, I believe, our reputations for a responsibility a responsibility that recognizes our call from Christ to continue God's initiative in this world, seeking out the least, the last, and the lost. And, and what he wants to do after that, that's the adventure. Because once you and I can set down our egos, we can set down our reputations, we can set down all the stuff that, that keeps us 
so focused on, on my own building and my own uh, uh, vision of, of what it means to be a, a person of God versus God's vision of what it means to be a person of God. Once we do that, if we can do that, I believe in my heart of heart that all of us can create around us this same beautiful thing that this man, you know, hundreds of years ago did during a season when he set down his own preservation and paid a cost for other people. How much more, how much more should we be doing that as Jesus did it for us? But to do it, we have to participate. We have to decide that this isn't just another holiday. It's another opportunity for us to evaluate, yes, our world and yes, the decay and yes, the brokenness and yes, all those things. But what if Christmas isn't about that? What if Christmas is all about evaluating you and where you're at in your process? What if you just take a minute to smell what's emanating from you? Is it, is it pride in your career? Are you just walking around with your perfect marriage? At least it appears so on the outside and that's what you present? My wife and I recently celebrated 25 years of not an easy marriage because I am not the easiest person to be married to. <laughs> she said, at least you know it, but then she nudged somebody next to her, which is, you know, dangerous. Uh, here's, here's what's changed though about our story right now. Here's what's changed. Is we're not just presenting anymore, and I hope you hear this from stage, about the fact we've, we've made it this long or, or all the, 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 uh, the clues that will help you have a better marriage. No, you know what we say? We talk about the things that we almost didn't make it doing. We talk about the ways that God provided through his grace. We talk about the way that one of us was merciful to the other one when she didn't have to be or I didn't have to be. We talk about the stuff that reminds us that without God and a focus upon him, we would be lost and not found in each other. But we don't just pretend those things don't exist and just present a trophy case of all the things we've accomplished. And I think as Christians, we need to do better talking with people about the things that God has overcome in our life because people can relate to that more than they can to your trophies. Because we, her and I, you and I, we're supposed to be part of the least, last, and lost team if we're part of God's uh, uh, mission, if we're part of his, his whole entire goal. I'm part of the kingdom and you're part of the kingdom. I am a child of God who was lost, set at the top of the table and told that I am cherished by the king, but I need to not take that and then become a king myself because I, then I lose my childhoodness. We need to stay spiritually children, swaddled in the presence of God, in the midst of our mess, anointed by him, loved by him, valued by him. We need to relish our identity without losing where it came from and what it costs, which was a savior who was born in a manger, lived on this planet, a life of incredible generosity and who was stretched upon a wooden cross and nailed for you and for me. And he didn't have to be, but he loves you and he loves me and he loves this world and he has ordained his church to be its messengers. And it's time you open your mouth and are part of it. Not just here, here's fine, out there, out there. I think that's what God wants to do with our story, with our marriages, with our singleness, with our heartache, with our suffering, with our prestige, with our talent, with our preaching, with our singing, with our signing, and with whatever gift God has given you to use to better his kingdom 
for those who are just like you, least, last, and lost. Amen. Amen. Would you stand? We'll close in prayer. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, I don't want to distract from what you're doing in the room and hearts right now, so I just ask you to keep doing it. That it wouldn't feel like the end of a church service, it would feel like the awakening of enlightenment. That people would leave with discussions to be had, with confessions to be had, with forgiveness to be asked, with, um, with, with just the ability to stay in the posture they're in, accepted as they are loved and forgiven. May some feel convicted, may some feel challenged, may some feel uh, more hope than they ever have. May we continue to just, to just walk out the mission, God, the missio day that you have. And may you allow us to just remember that we are part of that. We lift this time to you. We lift the remainder of this week to you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 God bless. I'll be here next week. See you then.